Our reading of God's holy word this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 4, beginning at verse 43, and extending to the end of the chapter. Now, after two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus had said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, Christ. And please be seated. Our account begins with Jesus leaving the Samaritan village where he converted the woman at the well and then ultimately all those who were present in the village and going into Galilee, which is called Christ's homeland. And that's the, the literal of the Greek. Galilee is a geographical area, and the, the literal definition of the word is fatherland. And so he's going home. But he's going home, leaving people who have enthusiastically embraced the fact that he is the Christ and going where he has already said, now a prophet has no honor in his own country. You would think that if a prophet has no honor in his own country, he would not go there. Or if he did go there, he would go there quite reluctantly. He would be like a Jonah, not really wanting to go, but... If you read the text, uh, Jesus is said to go into Galilee specifically because a prophet has no honor in his own homeland. It strikes the reader as odd. Jesus is going there specifically because he has no honor there. Why would that be? Well, when we call our Lord the Christ, he is, of course, the king. He is, of course, the priest. 
But he is also the prophet. He is the ultimate prophet, which all other prophets foreshadow. And there is something kind of interesting about the ministry of a prophet. A prophet overwhelmingly is sent by God to people who are not doing well. Among our friends, the Pentecostals, you will have prophets who will issue prophecies on a fairly regular basis, and they are often uh, very positive. A friend of mine was told, I've received a word of faith, uh, you're going to get well from a condition that you've had all your life. Uh, that tends to be the way it works. You don't typically have in First Pentecostal Church uh, I've received a word from the Lord, you're all rebellious sinners, you're all secretly idolatrous, and the wrath of God is going to fall on you. But if you read the prophets, that's exactly what you do have. You have a messenger from God saying, you are out of step with God, you are in danger, and you need to repent. Now, the other side of the prophetic message is a word of hope, and it's usually connected to if you repent, then things will, in fact, turn to blessedness. But a prophet is sent from God when you're a rebel. And Christ says of Galilee, that's my homeland. A prophet has no honor there. Therefore, and for that very reason, I am going to Galilee, because I have no honor there. Why does he have no honor there? It is because they are in rebellion to God. And Christ, as the priest, no, the prophet, goes specifically where rebellion and sin is. If you know your Heidelberg Catechism, you know that uh, one of the reasons we are called Christian is because we partake of Christ's prophetic ministry. It's not that we are prophets per se, but... Uh, we're giving a certain prophetic ministry because we are in him. And if prophets go specifically where they won't be liked, because think about it, if your message to the people is God calls you to repent, the odds of them being glad you've come and liking you are almost nil. If our Lord goes into Galilee specifically because they will not honor him there, then we who wear his name and partake of that ministry need to have the same kind of attitude. There is a tendency in the believer to say, you know, a prophet has no honor in this place or that, and to then avoid this place or that, because we kind of would like to have honor, and who can blame us? But that's where the rebellion to God is, and that is where the witness needs to be, so Jesus spends these days with converted people who have been brought to life, and it must have been a joyful several days. But then, because he will not be honored in Galilee, he goes to Galilee. Except the writer tells us it kind of looks like he is honored when he gets there. It sounds kind of positive, actually. Now, I'm not going to have any honor in my home country. I arrive, and the people receive me warmly. Uh, that seems to contradict what Christ has said, but not really. You see, one of the major themes of this account uh, 
is that faith that is built upon desiring to see a miracle is not actually commended. Uh, they have gone up to the feast. Jesus has been at the, the Passover. And while he has been there, he has done a number of miracles. We're not sure which ones are being referred to. The odds are uh, Christ did a lot of miracles that didn't even get written down. But regardless, he had done miracles in uh, Judea. The Galileans had been in Judea. Christ goes to them as a prophet saying they're not really going to honor me. But then they gladly receive him specifically because they saw the miracles that he did. Uh, In verse 48, Jesus will say, you people will by no means believe unless you see miracles. That's not a positive statement. That's a rebuke. And so what it looks like on the outside, oh, you know, we're going to honor the Lord, is not what's really happening. What is desired is they want miracles. Miracles from God's hand tend to be blessings, although uh, you might want to ask the Babylonian king about that handwriting on the wall thing. That was technically a miracle, but that didn't work out well for him. But generally, miracles are blessings from God. They set apart the natural order of things. They are things like, I had cancer and suddenly I am miraculously cured. Uh, Why is it that Christ doesn't commend them for looking for miracles? Have you ever considered, in the history of the visible church... What generation of the church saw the most miracles from God's hand, at least in the scripture? I think I've covered this from the pulpit before, but does anybody remember? The answer is that it is the generation that wandered in the desert. If you start counting it up, the number of miracles recorded in Holy Writ more fall to them than anywhere else. But we just sang about them. We sang Psalm 95, and there we're called to enter into our Lord's presence with thanksgiving and praise, to to pour out our heartfelt love to Him, and we are not to be like that generation. The generation that saw the Red Sea parted, that saw the plagues on Egypt, that saw water come from a rock, that saw manna fall from heaven, we are not to be like that generation. God says, uh, they are a people who don't know my ways. They detest them, we sang. And I swore in my wrath, they will never enter into my rest. The very people who have seen more miracles than anybody else in human history. God would be loved for other things. God loves to bless. There's no question about it. But if you think about it, loving God for the miracles is not exactly loving God. And so Christ comes to the Galileans. He says, they're not going to honor me. And they don't. And in fact, one of the things that John is showing by contrast is 
in a, a real way, the people of Galilee are kind of like the people of the wandering. He makes a point of saying, now, this is the second miracle that Christ did when he came out of uh, Judea to go to Cana. So in this town of Cana, there have been two miracles worked by God's hand, and nobody can miss it. The first miracle when he came out of Judea was he turned water into wine at a wedding, and... uh, It was a social event. There was a huge amount of people there. Nobody missed it. It was obviously miraculous. Now you have a miracle that's going to be fairly public because the man who approaches him is said to be a king's man. Uh, The English translation seemed to translate it nobleman, but that doesn't really... uh, The the Greek is literally a king's man. He's an official for the king. The king is Herod. Herod is king over Galilee. And when the king's man's son is healed from the point of death, it's going to be a very public miracle. But how many miracles did the Samaritans see? Going back into the first part of the chapter, uh, there's one, and it's fairly understated. The woman is amazed that Jesus is able to tell her what kind of life she's lived. Jesus says, you know, you say you have no husband, you speak correctly, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. That's effectively miraculous, but it's not exactly parting the Red Sea. It spoke to her, and it sent her off to the village, and it brought enough interest from the village for them to come see Jesus. But it is by no means as flashy as turning water into wine at a wedding or healing a nobleman's son from a distance. So uh, how do the Galileans compare to the Samaritans? The answer is not terribly well. At the end of the account of the woman at the well, the entire village of the Samaritans have been brought to faith. They know that they have encountered the Christ that God has given. At the end of the second miracle, the Galileans have encountered, one family has been converted, and that's it. So, say what you will for the power of miracles... Miracles don't tend to convert the soul. But then if you look at what the Bible says about them, that's not what they're intended for. The term miracle means a setting apart of natural law and working without it or against it or what have you. But the other two terms used for miracle being sign and wonder, uh, those testify that miracles are supposed to get your attention But it is the word of God, now that he's got your attention, that the spirit of God uses to convert the soul. Going back to the Galilean, the the, the Samaritans, once they have spoken with Christ, they turn to the woman that he met at the well, and they say, we no longer believe just because of your testimony. We have heard him speak. We have heard his words, and we are convinced that he is the Christ. Miracles will stop you in your tracks, 
the word of God converts. Uh, before we go any further, I would like to point something out, which is kind of an aside, but it's important. John tells us that Jesus says, now, you know, he said a prophet is not given honor in his home country. We're up to chapter 4 of John. In which of the former chapters did Jesus say that? Because John says, now remember, Jesus said this happens. Uh, Where in those first three chapters did Jesus say that? If you go back and look, you'll see he hadn't said it. And John says, now remember, Jesus said that. So this is one of the very first places you realize John assumes you know the other Gospels because that's where that statement is found. In Matthew and in Luke, and I think in Mark, you have Jesus say, now a prophet is is given no honor in his home country. Uh, you're called to be reminded of it by John, uh, but you haven't read it in his gospel yet. Um, What do we really learn from Jesus' encounter with this man? J.C. Ryle pointed out four things, and his points were absolutely solid. So I'm going to give you his because, I mean, he's dead on. The first thing that he pointed out was the rich may have their wealth as a fortress, but it is a very weak and paltry fortress. Solomon says in uh, Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 15 these words. There we go. Uh, the rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. He's right, of course, and we all see that happen day to day. There is a reason why George Soros is as old as he is and still kicking in pretty good shape. His wealth has enabled him to buy medical treatments and the best of all things. Uh, The wealthy can turn to their wealth, and it is for them sort of a fortress. But one out of one people do die. And when death comes for you or for a loved one, you can't buy death off. Now, you can kind of keep them at bay, like I mentioned with Soros. You can be given the best of medical treatment, but eventually death will come for you. And the psalmist in Psalm 49 points this out when he's dealing with the same thing Solomon is. It's two sides of the coin. In Psalm 49, the psalmist writes, Why should I fear in the days of evil? When the iniquity at my heels surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for such a redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that they should continue to live eternally and not see the pit." For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish. 
and leaves their wealth to others. This is a king's man. He serves directly underneath Herod. He is accustomed to power. He is accustomed to getting his way. But when his son gets sick and is at the point of death, all of his wealth cannot buy him medical treatment. He cannot command his healing. He is as helpless as any man. It is a paper fortress. It is an illusion. It works for a time against certain things, but pity the man who trusts in his wealth. Just so, J.C. Rao points out, though we would like to believe that our children, young and healthy and vibrant, will experience a long and blessed life, there is no promise from God that is true. There is an average to life. We're told in Psalm uh, 90, 91, that uh, the average human life is between 70 and 80 years, and that's generally what it is. You can get a little beyond that, but you can sure fall a lot under it. It has slightly changed in our day, but Ryle said, if you want to really see this in action, just go out to any church's graveyard and look at the dates that are on the tombstones there. Barely anyone gets past 50, he says. Often it is well below, and that was the truth in his era. Now, with our modern medicine and uh, our contingency plans of technology, it's a little different, but not much. All you have to do is walk through a graveyard, and you will very quickly find tombs, and relatively recent ones, where the numbers are from 1969 to 1975, where there are teddy bears on the tombstones, where it has not been 70 or 80 years. It has come much sooner than that. There is no guarantee that you will be able to see your children discipled through to their adulthood Uh, There is no lollygagging in discipling of children. You really do not know when the shadow of death will overshadow them. We have no idea how old this son is or how old the father is. It could be an adult son, but it could also be a six-year-old. The text doesn't say. All it takes is a moment and life is gone. Thirdly, affliction can be the manifestation of God's grace. You can picture a father utterly perplexed about how to help his child, utterly in dismay because he cannot heal him. Um, This is a terrible place to be. If you have ever been there, you know the sense of helplessness this man must felt. But consider how things turned out. The affliction of his son, which I'm sure hurt him more than if it was his own affliction, 
ultimately drove him to our Lord. This is no accident. It is the hand of God using a terrible moment in this man's life, using pain, suffering, helplessness, to drive him to the Lord Christ. On a first reading, you read the text and you say, this is a wonderful account because at the end of the account, a life has been saved. But that's not really true. At the end of this account, many lives have been saved. The young man who would have perished otherwise would have perished without the Lord because we're told at this point the king's man believes with all his household, suggesting this is the day of salvation for them. This young man would have died without Christ But now because of the suffering that God's providence brought into their lives, he has worked their salvation. Now, all the household, though they die, they shall live. They will never die, because in the Lord is eternal life. But it did not come from anything but the hand of affliction. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says... Uh, this concerning affliction he has suffered. Psalm 119 in verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Now, uh, why wouldn't the psalmist learn the statutes otherwise? Well, quite frankly, because uh, we shouldn't be like horse or mule which kicks against the goads and refuses the bridle. But we are left to our own devices without the hand of God moving us to him, to him we will not go. And quite frankly, the stick works better than the carrot. And the Lord in his mercy, the Lord in his kindness, has allowed this young man to come to the point of death, the family to be traumatized, because ultimately they are the recipients of God's grace. If you are dealing with affliction, if you have dealt with affliction, if you are dealing with sorrow and trauma, and you belong to the Lord, take heart. Because, as our confession says, all things must work out for our salvation. It's the teaching of God's Word. Has God blessed you? It is for your good. Has God afflicted you? It is for your good. This man doesn't know it, but God is being utterly kind to him this day in his affliction. Uh, Finally, it's interesting to watch the development of this man. We're told at what point he has saving faith. It's at the end. He believes in Jesus with all his household. At the end of this, he's converted. But how does his faith develop? And I use that term intentionally because you see it develop. At the beginning of the account, he has heard that Jesus, who turned water into wine, had come back into Galilee but had not come to Capernaum. 
he believed that Jesus could heal his son, otherwise he would not have gone to him. Is that faith? Well, Jesus says to him, unless you people see miracles, you'll by no means believe. Uh, It's not faith, but it's the beginning development of it. He has been spurred by God's providence, by his need. There is a certain trust he has that drives him to the Lord that develops in his encounter with the Lord. Come, Jesus, come to my town, come to my house. When my son is in your presence, I know that you can heal him. Jesus says, about 30 miles away from the son, go your way, your son lives. Uh, The father must have felt rather incredulous. He had enough of a faith to believe that Jesus could heal his son in person, but now this man is saying, your son is healed. He doesn't kick up. He believes his son is healed. He goes his way, the text says. He believed that his son would be healed. And then it was confirmed when his servants came and said, your son was healed. And he inquires of the time, and it's exactly the time. Uh, But he had believed before his servants had come that the son would be healed. And yet still he had not reached saving faith. Saving faith would be at the end once he had confirmation. You see a developing process, a, a growing budding of faith. Uh, some have referred to the uh, nobleman as having a spark of faith at the beginning and a flame of it at the end. I guess that's a way of describing it. The truth is, faith gets nurtured. There are some who have just an absolute crisis, and in the space of an hour, they are given saving faith perhaps even in the space of 10 minutes. But God often fans into flame small sparks. Uh, A smoldering reed he will not put out. A bent reed he will not break. The book of uh, Zechariah tells us, do not rue the day of small beginnings. You see that here. Our Lord nurtures the faith, our Lord makes it grow, and ultimately it buds for eternal life. There's a great comfort in that. It shows uh, Jesus as the gentle shepherd. I don't particularly like the phrase, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Not that Christ can't be described as meek, he certainly can, But when we use that phrase, we picture the effeminate guy who is painted in medieval paintings, who is about as far from Jesus as you can get. Um, Jesus is certainly not effeminate. He is certainly not weak. But thanks be to God, he is gentle. He is gentle. He is kind. He fans faith into existence in his elect. He takes his time. Uh, God has used affliction on this man, but God is also being incredibly patient with this man. God knows how to minister to the sick. 
At this point in the Gospel of John, it should dawn upon us what the kingdom of God is going to look like in its fruition. We have traveled through chapter 1, and in chapter 1 we have seen our Lord interact with common fishermen, blue-collar workers, the backbone of society, not to be despised by any means, but not means of men of power or significance. In chapter 3, we saw our Lord deal with a member of the Sanhedrin. He is on his way to faith. He is very much like the nobleman. We will see him three times in the Gospel of John, and we will watch his spark of faith be fanned into a flame. But he is much more significant culturally than the fisherman. Then in chapter 4, at the beginning of the chapter, we see Christ interacting with a woman of ill repute, and she deserves that title. But our Lord brings her to faith, just like he brings the fisherman, and as he's working with the man of the Sanhedrin. And now we see a Jewish politician, a man of means, wealth, and significance. And they are all at the feet of Jesus, and they are all brought into his kingdom. Our Lord reaches out to every type and condition of man. The gospel is for the uneducated ditch digger and for the Ph.D. And you see that right here as these chapters roll by. Our Lord will call all types and conditions to himself. He does not discriminate against where you are in society. There are no untouchables. I, I really don't know what is currently in vogue. I am speaking from 30 years ago, and maybe things have gotten much better. But I went into Bible college thinking I might like to plant a church. That might be God's calling. And then when I got to seminary, I felt, yeah, this is definitely my calling. And in fact, I got involved in doing that. I was the founding minister of Hope Presbyterian Church. But because that was on my mind and it was my goal, I took a number of classes in Bible college and in seminary where the focus was on church planting. And in every one of them, at both of those evangelical institutions, I was taught certain principles about the kingdom of God that I was expected to follow, and if I didn't follow them, it would be disastrous. There was a concept of the bridges of God. And what this meant was that like sought like. That if you were going to plant a church and succeed, you would figure out the demographic of people that you should go to, and you would focus on those people. Uh, you would focus on the academic, or you would focus on the businessman, or you would focus on uh, the blue-collar worker, but you would be exclusive to a certain kind of people because like seeks like. And uh, that's just the way human beings are uh, 
blue-collar people don't associate with white-collar people. Uh, Well-educated people don't associate with people who are not. So realize that you have to plant a church of like people. That is not what we see here. We see Christ calling to himself every type, every condition of man. And when we see the first churches develop, we see that they are filled with every type and condition of man. Now, that will occasionally lead to a little bit of sparks and uncomfortability. Uh, You will have places in the New Testament where, because people are not quite the same, they do kind of scrape against each other. But the overwhelming picture of the original churches are they were a place where uh, a Mary Magdalene, who was a prostitute, can, having repented, be held in just the same estate and honor as a king steward. Christ erases the distinctions. Christ makes his followers one. And if you look at church history and you look at the places where God has poured out his grace upon his church, the eras where the gospel has expanded the most, that's the kind of churches you will see. It is only in those eras when uh, the church has been dull, the church has been hard of hearing, the church has been indifferent to her Lord, that's when you see a black church over there, a blue-collar church over here, a church attached to the academic institution over there, that's when men pull apart. But when the gospel is honored, all types and conditions of men find a place with our Lord and they walk together. And speaking of men of means, who is this nobleman, this king's man? There is another story in Scripture that reminds me of our question. It's found in the book of Philemon, and it's in chapter 8, well, verse 8 through 11. Paul writes to Philemon, and Philemon is a slave owner, and one of his slaves has run away, but Paul sends him back to Philemon, Uh, And this is the heart of what he says to Philemon, verse 8 to 11. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. He's sending him back to his former owner, and the owner is within his legal rights to crucify Onesimus for having run away. That's just what the law says. Paul says, he came to faith under my ministry. I'm sending him back to you. I want you to receive him. Uh, that would kind of exclude the idea of crucifying him. 
and, and if we went further, Paul says, he's your brother in the Lord, and he makes a play on the man's name. Onesimus means useful, but Paul slightly changes it and says, you know, formerly he was useless to you, but now he really is Onesimus. Now he is useful both to you and to me. The New Testament doesn't tell you how that plays out. Did Philemon receive Onesimus? Did he disregard the letter? Uh, There's nothing in the New Testament that says. But the bishop of Ephesus, uh, about 30 years later, which is a city that is within walking distance of where the letter of Philemon went to, which is Laodicea, uh, the bishop there is a man named Onesimus. It's not a particularly common name, and when the bishop writes correspondence, he makes a play on his name. He says, I want you to know I was once a useless man, but the Lord has made me useful in his service. Is that our Philemon's Onesimus? It can't be proven, but it sure looks like it. Same kind of condition happening here. In a fairly famous passage in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke steps aside for a moment and tells us of who it is that is traveling with our Lord and what they're doing. In chapter 8 of the Gospel of Luke we read, Now it came to pass afterward that when he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing, it came to pass that he went through preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom he had, had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. You still run into women named Joanna. Ultimately, they're named for this woman. She traveled with the Lord and provided for him out of her means because she had quite a good amount of means because she was the wife of Chusa, King Herod's steward. The steward is a form of the king's man. We are told that these women had demons driven from them and infirmities healed. Are we looking at Chusa? Uh, It's quite likely. The writer, the Apostle John, will several times use what we call the bashful author approach. He will include somebody in the story that people want to hear about, but he won't mention their name Uh, That's just a cultural way of writing. Uh, How many king's men end up ministering to our Lord through their wife? I don't know, but probably not a lot. We could be seeing Joanna's conversion here through her husband and her son. She is brought to faith by this act of kindness, and it leads to further ministry. And that brings me to my final point, at the end of our account, 
the king's man's family all belong to the Lord. He believes, and so do all of his household. It is natural for the gospel to take root in a family. If you look at how baptism is used by the earliest of churches, they baptize the whole household. Uh, Mom and dad come to faith, or dad comes to faith. Everybody in the house gets baptized. You may hear Baptists say, well, it doesn't say children. They're wrong because the term household means everybody in your household. Anybody here have a household but your kids don't belong to it? Shut them out at the end of the night, tell them to go live under the stairs. You know. uh, they baptize the whole household because it is very natural for the gospel to land in a home and permeate that home and bring that home to faith. Now, in all fairness, our Lord says this is not always the case. In, again, going back to the Gospel of Luke, this time in chapter 12, verse 49 to 53, uh, Christ says this, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against daughter, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Such things do happen. The unelect are unelect and they're not going to come to faith. Uh, this can lead to all kinds of conflict in a family, and it does, but it is not the rule. The rule tends to be the gospel takes root in a home, and the home becomes a school of Christ. It becomes an oasis from the world. It becomes a fortress of Israel. It becomes a light in a dark place. The gospel reaches into the family, and that's the natural way for things to happen. This man came seeking the health of one of his children. He walked away bearing the gift of life for all of his children. His family transformed. May God give us a season of grace that we see these things happen in our day.